Hey, what's up, Jason? So in this episode, we speak with Eric Goldstein uh, from, well, just about everywhere. And, you know, Eric was so generous with his time that we decided to go ahead and break this interview into two sections. So in the first episode, uh, we're going to talk about his career before Vidalia Mills, and that comprises Ralph Lauren uh, working at The Gap and then also having his own brand in Jean Shop. And man, you can basically track the course of salvage denim in the United States by mapping this man's career. I mean, just, uh, just pretty incredible to see. And we could have literally recorded an entire season talking to this man. <laughs> it's true. And for me, the core takeaway, I mean, there were so many, but one of them was really just Eric's nose for business, but also his work ethic. I, what I loved is when we were talking, he shared a story about how he put in all this work uh, to present a pair of jeans to, to Ralph. And initially, Ralph was really positive on it, but then he thought about it and said, you know what, this isn't good enough. And uh, Eric was really crestfallen by that, right? A ton of work saying, hey, go back to the drawing board, make this better. And he did. And that just speaks to me about the perseverance that everybody needs in their own career uh, to kind of take it up a notch and get to the next level. He pushed through those barriers. And man, what an inspiration. Yeah, we might have to come back and, and do some more episodes with him. Yeah, so with no further ado, let's get to the episode with Dr. Denham, Mr. Eric Goldstein himself. The New York Denim Hangs Podcast, bringing denim lovers together. All welcome. Come hang. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the New York Denim Hangs podcast. Check us out on Instagram at NYDenimHangs. I'm Eric, the founder of New York Denim Hangs, and I'm on Instagram at fitted.underground. Hey, I'm Jason, and you can find me on Instagram at Happy Valley Outfitters. And today we're speaking with Eric Goldstein, who is the founder of Jean Shop and the head of denim development at Vidalia Mills. For those who don't know, Vidalia is bringing back salvage denim production to the United States. We couldn't be more excited about that. You can check out Eric on Instagram at Eric Goldstein and at Vidalia Mills. Eric, welcome. Hey, Eric. Welcome, Dr. Denim. <laughs> you saw that today. That, was a, that started as a joke from the mill, and then, and then it, it went a step further today. It, it definitely did. I think you've been completely branded. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I think it was sick. <laughs> and you guys share a little background, right? You're from the same town. Did I, did I pick that up correctly earlier? We are. Jersey boys. It's small world, but um, yeah, I kind of don't really tell anyone where I'm from. <laughs> so Eric, we are super excited to talk to you today. You have um, such a deep background in denim and yeah, you know, just from your background at Gap, RRL, Gene Shop, now with Medallion Mills. So there's so much to dive into, but maybe we can just go back a little bit. Like, how did you, how did you get into denim in the first place? So it's a great question. I, I graduated, I went to Philadelphia College of Textile and Science. So I went to college to learn about textiles and manufacturing and garment production a really long time ago. I don't want to tell you guys how long ago, but a really long time ago. And um, I was actually recruited right out of college to work for Polo Ralph Lauren Corporation in quality control division. Wow. So I'm 22 years old and I'm traveling around to factories and mills and laundries all over the place. And back in the day before the computer, it was carrying notebooks around and, and, and measuring and shade samples. So I would go to a factory, let's say in Kentucky, um, where we were making jeans. And I'd open up, you know, 40 boxes and have to measure jeans for a living. And it was really, it was an entry level job. And it was kind of not so much fun sitting in sweaty factories, measuring garments, checking shade, and then reporting back to corporate whether they could ship it or not. So I did that and I found myself really kind of getting more involved in denim than other products. 
because it was different and obviously for the obvious reasons, then something that's intriguing and it changes. It's much more interesting to me than a polyester, you know, windbreaker or something. So I started just veering my into in, my interest into denim. And then one day, literally, my boss's name was Sean Flanagan. I worked in the New Jersey office for, for Polo, which was all the non-creatives and all, you know, logistics people were in New Jersey. And Sean called me one day and said, uh, there's a new concept starting in New York and you have a meeting set up for tomorrow to go in and talk to Ralph and couple other people and I said Ralph who and they're like well, Ralph Lauren who owns this company and I'm like me I'm 22 years 23 years old what else do you want to talk to me for and sure enough um that whole concept ended up being double RL I was talking to Ralph before it had a name before we had a team wow. set up yeah and I I really was flattered because I really thought I knew nothing and I didn't know nothing at that point I was green as they come wow um, but I did have some you know some schooling with manufacturing and I had passion I had a passion. You know? So somehow he got a hold of the fact that I was doing what I was doing through, you know, through my boss, through the ranks, and um, went into New York and ended up uh, moving into, you know, moving my office into New York about two months after that. Um, once the concept started coming together, and yeah, I was uh, one of the people that started Double uh, RL from the beginning. I'm sitting around a table without a name, trying to come up with a concept with Ralph saying, you know, I, I have a vintage concept. I really want to do this. I want to make it about jeans and. It, it, I never, I kind of never left the denim world after that. I've been in it forever. What an incredible start in the denim world. I mean, people do backflips to break into RRL, and right out of college, you're going to work for Polo, and then there you are before RRL gets off the ground. I mean, that's just a, a dream beginning. Yeah. I found myself, I was like two years into it, and I actually, had, for the most part, I was reporting to Ralph. I would deal with Ralph every day, have all kinds of different Ralph stories. Because um, I was traveling around a lot, and, and, and Ralph, this is, this is my favorite story. Actually, yeah, this story actually had an impact on my career. But Ralph and Jerry, we were in a design room talking about denim, and Ralph challenged me. He said, we got to make it perfect. we got to make it different. We can't do what everybody else is doing. Now, keep in mind, this was, you know, what, what year was this? Early 90s, mid-90s? And there wasn't a lot of technology around. There wasn't a lot of experience around in denim, and there weren't a lot of factories. The factories were, you know, sporadic, and they, weren't, they didn't have a lot of uh, knowledge at that point. So, so he said, we got to make it different. We got to make it special. I don't want to launch it just another gene. So I decided I was going to come up with it. With, I was going to go out to El Paso, Texas, to this laundry called East West Laundry. That's where we, it was a, we, they made our jeans and washed them and start playing around, start coming up with some ideas and different formulas, different ways of doing things. And I went out there and I spent a week and a half and basically did a, a nice stone wash with a little bit more detail on it. That wasn't, it was cool, but it wasn't, you know, it was, it, was, it was pretty cool. So I, I bring it back to the office, and I go into a room, into one of Ralph's showrooms. And we, we as you guys probably know, we call it at, the, at Polo, they came up with the names called Rigging a Model or Rigging a Showroom. So I would take these jeans, and I, I, I put them on the mannequins in the showroom with other vintage pieces. You know, call a meeting, and I called Ralph in, and he was like, wow, these jeans are great. This is beautiful. Really excited. Um, I can't believe this worked out so well so fast. And I was on cloud nine. Because once again, I'm a young kid and I felt like I knew nothing. I hit it out of the park on the first shot. I'm like, this is fucking cool. This guy's like, he loves what I did. <laughs> so, so things go on and conversations happen. And about two weeks later, I get a call and they said that he wants to see me down in the design room. So I marched down to the design room and I go in and, and he's like, it's not really that great. He goes, I've been living with it and it's not really that great. He goes, we need to do better. And I was shattered. I was like destroyed because I thought I was like, you know, on top of the world and suddenly brought me down and almost like it, it was just a terrible feeling. You were ready to retire at 23. 
he's, he's like, I know you could do something, you know, do something different. He's like, I'm t- to challenge him to go out there and really figure something out. And I went back to my boss and I said, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what, how I'm going to figure anything different out, but the rest of the industry hasn't figured it out yet. I started making a bunch of phone calls and I started calling around the dry cleaners to see if somebody, if somebody, dry clean, somebody in the dry cleaning business would actually give me the freedom to come into their facility and mess around and, and, and play with them because all the, all the denim development to that point has been done on what's called the wet side, which is stone washing, all different enzymes and so on and so forth. Nobody's ever tried anything on what's called wow. in the industry the dry side, which is dry cream. So uh, I called around, a bunch of people told me, you're crazy, you're nuts, go away, no thanks. And um, my one acquaintance, this guy, I mean, who's turned into a very dear friend of mine now, but then I didn't really know him so well, owned one of the largest dry cleaners in the country, in Kansas City, Missouri, called Arrow Fabric. And he's like, sure, come on now. Like, let's play around a little bit. So what we did was we washed the jeans. We still washed the jeans in El Paso. And then we brought a bunch of jeans to Kansas City to play around. And we ended up, I ended up coming up with something that, you know, we patented. A finish that Ralph loved so much. And we launched Double R.O. So what it was, we were taking stain. We were taking literally Minwax stain, which is now it's public because it was patented. But it, the patent has since expired. It's only good for 17 years. We were taking Minwax stain and applying the stain onto a pair of jeans through a dry cleaning machine, which is nothing that had ever been done before. So it was, there were high lows, it sat on the surface, different on the orange. So some areas were darker, some areas were lighter. And we really brought it to a point that the jeans looked amazing and they looked different. They looked different than any other jean on the market. So I brought it back to the office. And I, I, you know, there was many trips out there to try to figure it out. And I brought it back to the office and I, I, I set up another room and I put vintage jeans and I put these jeans and, and all kinds of other product on some mannequins and I called Ralph in and he spent some time looking at it and looking at it and he goes, this is amazing. And he's like, I love it so much and it's beautiful and it's different. The product feels good, so it's really soft. We had a great hand. And yeah, we ended up patenting it, literally. We have a, I have a patent on my, under my name that's owned by Ralph Lauren. He, own, he owns a patent. I, pat, I was the inventor. And we, for years, for, I don't know, about eight years, we, we did, we used uh, that process. So you were you were based in New York at the time, and then you were flying out to different parts of the country to get the to have the the wet process done, and then do the dry process, bring it back to New York. I mean, that's amazing, and I just love the entrepreneurial spirit that you had when you were 23, flying all over the country, being willing to test things. You know, I'm sure you failed a whole bunch before you came across that process that worked. So sleepless nights, failing, covered in chemicals that you had no idea what the hell they were going to do to you. You know, stains all over the place, people complaining how bad it smelled. You know, in the factory. But yeah, I have um, actually on my office back here I have a plaque that's you know, with my patent on it. Patent number, and then I had a I had a legal document that Ralph had to give me a dollar. Money had to change hands legally, so Ralph gave me a dollar and signed it, and that's was my dollar for coming up with the patent that he owns it. So it was a great part of my career. And he went out and challenged me because I thought it was great from the beginning, but it was a little too easy. And then when he came back to me and really challenged me, we came up with a process that was different. That back in the day nobody had done. Nobody had done, nobody's done it since then. Also, um, now it's outdated, obviously. But I had many people reaching out to me after we patented it to try to figure out how to do it. Yeah, just it's a, it was a very interesting time. That's that's amazing. I mean, and, and what a great story as well. You know that you had come up with something, you were proud of it, and then he really said, "Hey, you know what? Go back to the drawing board, make it better." And you rose to that challenge. So that's that's the story of every entrepreneur right there. It is, and then, and then for him to say, "I want to patent it, I want to own it," was pretty flattering. Yeah. So when you were in that initial meeting right before Double RL got its name, and when you guys were just talking about the concept, like what was what was the core concept behind Double RL? And for people who don't know, right, that stands for Ranch Ralph Lauren. 
just cool vintage inspired was the really was his concept. He wanted to make great quality and he wanted to make it in the USA and he just wanted it to be, you know, true vintage inspired. Comfortable clothing everybody wanted to wear. Um, with the Western twist. And that's obviously that's when we went back and said, Okay, you know, double R. Yeah. And there's that Western Western flair to it still today, you know, all these years later. So it's endured. The label, the double R L label I I actually came up with. The actual Really? That's, that's branded. Yeah. the first one I actually the first double R L label I actually made myself. So give give us the backstory on that. Was that you just, you know, sitting around drawing or did you actually, you know, get like a hot iron and you were branding leather or how did how did that come about? So I didn't actually come up with the artwork, but it was the brand from the ranch. But I took that idea that 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 concept to put onto onto the leather patch and presented to him on the back of a pair of jeans. I actually have had I don't know I haven't seen it in years and believe me I kick myself all the time. I had the original patch that said RL likes on it. So how long were you with double double RL for? About five years. Okay. So you really cut your teeth. It, it, it turned into a fit problem. There was always it wasn't ever first of all it was way ahead of its time. It was a great product, it was way ahead of its time. You know no people weren't buying salvage then, they didn't even understand it then. They weren't spending $200, $200 plus on a pair of jeans. They didn't want raw jeans. So it was a lot, there were a lot of things. They're just great products, still an incredible brand that I'm passionate about, but um, just way, 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 way ahead of its time. You know, yeah. that's why it's, it, you know, when I, I left there, having a tremendous relationship with Ralph, uh, personally, but I went to The Gap, which was the largest producer of denim in the world at the time. Right. Actually, just before we leave Double RL, you know, so many, like, Ralph Wren is such an iconic figure, and I think people are really curious about him as a person. What was it, you know, if you could boil it down, what was it like working with Ralph Lauren directly? He was incredible. Unbelievably honored to work with him all the time. I did a lot of work on his personal things. I did the interior of one of his cars. He had a, a truck, a Defender, that he wanted to put a leather interior in. So I did a lot of leather work, too, not just denim. A lot of distressing on leather, which was all in leather jackets that were part of the double RL. So I literally worked with Ralph and went to Ralph's house to, to his cars to age the seats on his leather on his, in his truck. I did a couch for him um, and Ricky, a leather couch that I distressed. I worked on a bunch of his leather jackets, distressing and aging and so on. So it was amazing. It was just incredible. He, um, he, went, to, he went to Europe once shopping and came back and called me and said, his assistant called, said, Ralph wants you in his office. So I go in his office. Got an unbelievable leather jacket on that's in a lot of pictures to date even that he's wearing. It's a it's a brownish gray leather jacket with a white t-shirt that, that's in his one of his iconic pictures. So I took that jacket and had to reline it, put shoulder pads in it, and, and remake that whole jacket for him. And he gave me a present after that. He gave me a really cool, gave me a really cool belt. So he to me he was incredible. He was amazing. I, I absolutely was honored and I just loved working for him. I learned so much from him. Learned so much. That's amazing. I mean, again, just what an amazing uh, place to cut your teeth and, and start your experience in the denim world. And at that point, was was Japanese denim already starting to come into the United States, or where were we at in terms of the the evolution of raw denim? Really early on. Really, really early yeah. on. That's why people just didn't get it. We launched. People didn't understand it. Um, there wasn't the demand for it at all. And we had some fits that were messed up. The product just didn't fit right because Ralph wanted everything. To, he, he wanted to be in fittings, and he wanted everything to fit him. And you know, it just didn't, it didn't fit. Like we, we had a bunch of fit issues with all the stores in the middle of the country. And then they would call and say, our customers are complaining. They want the product, but it's not fitting right. So then I, I actually became, I was obviously, you know, significantly a better shape then. I actually became what they called the Midwest fit model because of my socks. And I, so I, I started, you know, fitting the jeans as well. So it, it, the brand is, is, is incredible. Um, it's just, you know, I still think that there's times that there's some product out there. So I go into that store sometimes and I still think some of the things could use some help and fit. Yeah, yeah.
Okay, cool. So you know, you're the Midwest fit model, not the New Jersey fit model, but the, the Midwest fit model. So then how did you how did you take your next step uh, over to the Gap? I was just so heavily into denim that I, I got a phone call once from the Gap and I told them I wasn't really interested at the time and I was really happy where I was because I was really happy there and I was treated very well. And I turned it down and then about two weeks later, I got a call from Mickey Drexler. You know, I'm sure you guys know, was the president of The Gap at the time and iconic and still is iconic in the industry. And Mickey's like, you know, I really want you to come over here, you know, buy huge volumes of denim. And I think you'd be able to really help us out a lot. So, so I'm not really interested. I'm, I'm fine where I am. And I'm just really young. And then I got a phone call like two weeks after that saying, I really want you to rethink it. You know, I'll make a really long story short with a couple of meetings and conversations with Ralph. And uh, I just decided it was time because of just for the experience, just for literally the experience of being able to go from a small company like Double RL to a tremendously popular denim company, probably at the time the most popular denim company, which was together. Right. Yeah, but basically Double RL at that point is is kind of like a startup, right? I mean, you have the Polo brand behind you just to, you already have a marketing platform and a brand there, but Double RL was, was very much a startup. And now you're going over to Gap, which was doing, you know, millions in terms of the units of denim going out the door. And this is what, the, the later 90s that we're talking when Gap was, was huge. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, yeah, I was there for 11 years. I was there during the heyday when it, when it really wow. turned it off. Yeah. Wow. And and what uh what was your your job responsibility? I mean, I'm sure it changed over 11 years. But what did they bring you in for, and what did you end up doing? I was brought in. Um, I was on for most of my 11. Well, for my whole 11 years, I was based in New York. You know, Gap is New York and San Francisco. But for my whole 11 years, I was based in New York, but I also had an office in San Francisco. I was bi-coastal, so I was traveling back and forth um, every week. I traveled to the Gap, someplace. I would be in the Hong Kong office, the Italy office, Mexico, and a factory at you know factory in LA, corporate office. I was always, uh, I was always everything denim. The gap, I never really veered off of that. I did denim and leather. Was really, that was my product development profile. Right. Denim and leather. Right. So I was typically working. I was part of design, but I was also helping production. So I was the guy that was out and going to factories, taking design and trying to figure out how to, how to put turn into production. So I was pre-production. I was, you know, just a bunch of different titles. And at that point, was the production still happening in the United States or, right, we have 90s NAFTA jobs starting to go to, you know, south of the border, off to China. Yep. Um, what was going on in terms of the production scene at the time? It was it was still in the United States. Um, we were doing out of a factory called Coos in Los Angeles, who's now the owner of, of AG. Coos uh, was doing about 75,000 units a week for us in Los Angeles, washing and, and, and yeah. And then we were probably doing um, about double that every week in Mexico, um, and then a bunch more in, in, in over in Asia. So yeah, it was, production was, was, we were still doing a significant amount in the United States. By all means, it was in other hemispheres as well. And where was most of the denim coming from at that time? Oh God, we did a lot. We did a lot with Candiani at the time. Uh, we had some Mexican Which is denim. Italian, yep. Yeah, we had, we did, we had a ton from Cone. You know, I was, I was really very close with Cone at the time. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit of everybody, you know, it depends. Because I worked with denim, I, I worked on men's, women, and kids. So it was a little bit, it was a little bit of everything, kind of all over the place, depending on the season. And, and while you were there, like, was there any denim that, that was presented as raw and people would actually fade down, or was all of it being pre-distressed in one form or another? When we started in 1969, uh, we, we launched with a raw jean. Prior to that, I don't recollect anything being raw. But, um, yeah, 1969 was, was amazing. That was our raw. That was our Kaihara fabric. So I spent a lot of time in Japan, at the mill of Kaihara, with Mr. Kaihara and the whole team over there, and traveling back and forth, developing fabrics. At the time, we actually hired Adrano Goldschmidt to work. So um, I, I was Adrano was a consultant, um, and I was with him 24/7 for you know forever. 
for years developing the 1969 line. So you actually helped develop that that 1969 line. You were you were one of the guys who was on that. Yeah, yeah I was the original guy right there. We called the Project X wow. before called 1969 because it was a big secret at the beginning. Then um, we decided to you know the merchant side, okay, let's start letting letting it out there, and it turned into um, you know obviously it was the whole idea was 30th anniversary of the guy. So 1969, we, we launched it in 1999. But I started working on it in 1997, two years before the launch. Wow. Yeah. And so was that, was, so that was raw, but was it salvage as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. We also, we, we did a bunch of washes on it as well. Over at Martelli in Italy, the famous laundry over in Italy, Martelli. It was over there, you know, for weeks at a time, doing product development. Yeah. yeah. And that, that 1969 line is still uh, being produced today. So there was real longevity to that. How was it received initially by, by the market when you rolled it out? Oh, it was great. It was amazing. Um, you know, one thing that the product was incredible, but we pissed off a bunch of people in the industry because we took this amazing product with Kyle Hart denim that was sold in the United States. Every gene for the launch had a serial number on it, but we sold it for $69. So people, you know, insiders in the industry, other people that owned other brands and things, they got pretty pissed off. They were like, okay, this is like you're underselling the product and you're not doing the industry any favors. It's not cool. You know, it should be $169 at least. But we wanted, you know, the merchants wanted to be $69 from, at the launch for 1969. So it was wildly successful to get it. Literally, we had people yeah. call different stores to get a serial number, a lower serial number. And they were like chasing product down throughout the country. Eric, I feel like this is a tour de force of all the denim royalty uh, in the business. You know, we're talking about Ralph Lauren, uh, Mickey Drexler, right? Gab, AG, you know, everybody. So just, you know, you didn't, do you attribute that to you just being in the right place at the right time? Or do you feel like you kind of had a nose for what was going to be big next? That's an interesting question. I never thought about it. A little, little bit of both, I would say. A little bit of both, I would say. I thought it was time to go over to Gap, that big things could happen over there. And then I kind of did the, did the deep dive with everything, so... I was the guy that was really, you know, getting involved and bringing ideas to the table. So I love branding as well, which I think how I got involved in all these different things, you know, trying to come up with concepts and brands as well. Yeah. So yeah it was an amazing experience. I, I, I traveled. I was at every laundry, every mill, cutting soap facilities all over the world. I mean, I learned a ton of, I learned so much. It was crazy. It was really an amazing experience. I wouldn't, you know, tra trade for anything. It's, uh, yeah. What a great what a great education. Um, so 11 years, at, 11 years at Gap, that kind of brings us through the, the 2000s. Was next the next step actually creating your own brand with Gene Shop? 2003, I left the Gap. Kind of, uh, it was a weird thing. I left the Gap as, as um, kind of on the top there. Business was really good. Uh, as, a, as a younger, you know, much younger than I was now, obviously there was a lot of stock options and things. So it was a tough one to say, okay, I'm out. But I also thought that I had, done these two big companies already, and now it's time to do something fun and different. My two partners were the founders of Lucky Brand. So it was Gene Montesano and Barry Perlman, or the founders of Lucky Brand. And they, they called me one day, they were just very good friends of mine through the industry. They had sold Lucky Brand to Liz Claiborne, they were still running it. They said, but we want to start another cool brand. We want it to be, we want to start the best denim brand in the world, is what we thought. Um, made in USA, and you know, all salvage, whatever the price is, the price is, we want to put the product out. And we want to do it in a really cool way. And it needs to be really cool, really authentic. So, you know, I had a couple of meetings with them and I ended up, okay, I'm leaving the Gap. All my friends would say, happy to leave the Gap. You have all the benefits, a huge company behind you. You know, you got everything there and you're going to, you're going to leave and go on your own. What, is it, what do they need another denim brand for in this, in this world? And, I, you know, it was a tough decision. You know, I really believed in what we were doing and our vision with, with my partners. So I decided to just, what the hell, I'm going to give it a shot. I, had, I, left, I left the Gap in really good terms. 
to the point that they were like, okay, if you want, you know, come back, you come back, but give it, you know, we're money and give it a shot. So, and I'm still really good friends with a lot of people. I still talk to Mickey Drexel on a regular basis. Talk to Adriano all the time. So, you know, it's, I made a lot of friends in the industry throughout the years. Yeah. But, yeah. but you know, Gene Shop was really my, that was my heart and soul. You know, we had a great 15 yeah. year run, amazing stores. You know, we opened in meatpacking before, really before anybody but Levi's had their own stores. Levi's had their own stores, but other, prior to that, 2003, people really didn't have their own stores. So, mm-hmm. and we opened up only raw down. We didn't have one washing store and we had washing machines in the back. And do you remember, you guys remember that? I do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In, in the early 2000s, there was this influx of quote unquote luxury denim. I mean, I remember going to Atrium and Barney's and just seeing so many different brands with price points from 200 plus, but nothing at that uh, raw state or, exactly. or, self, or salvage, you know, whether it was, you know, true religion to rock and Republic, lots of, lots of gaudiness, I guess to say. And lots of, lots of distressing, right? Like you had guests that, that's when like the Italian denim was becoming really big with diesel and then starting to see the $300 price point. So, you know, switching the script and starting to do something that's, that's purely raw. That was, that's pretty different at that time in 2003. The industry thought it was crazy. They were like, what are you doing? Who's buying this? And then, and then, you know, we found this really cool little store on 14th street that was between you know Stella mccartney and jeffrey's so we had a great an unbelievable location and we had a little door a little a little door that we painted black so we're like okay screw this we're gonna you know we don't have a big storefront so we can't really do much with it we're just gonna paint it black we're gonna put a little jean shot neon sign on top of with a pig pig came because of the meat pack industry yeah it was uh, it was it was incredible I, uh, it was just like the the start the early days of the meat packing before it blew up and and turned into yep. what it is now but you guys definitely were were the pioneers uh, of that area. That area was a real dump when we started there. I mean, I had drug addicts trace me down one night when I was in there building the store. You know, we had, there was like blood in the street still because there's still really, literally meat packing across the street. Oh yeah, I mean, just the amount of pig grease that was on the sidewalk. So, uh, you know, my background being a DJ, I used to DJ over at APT on Sundays for about five years. So I just remember uh, our front door guys with the, uh, the handfuls of uh, incense burning. <laughs> right, especially in the summer it was terrible you couldn't it's, even walk around the summer was god awful and just to see all all the people actually slip slipping with their high heels on uh on pig grease and then all the, the tranny, <laughs> all the the tranny prostitutes in the on the corner it, it was definitely uh-huh. the the heyday of the meatpacking district all the trannies all the drug dealers and then the restaurant florent where they all used to hang out yeah yeah, that was meatpacking. But that's why we went there. It was different. It was it had so much charm. It wasn't just another street in New York. You know, it was like, yeah. screw you. You want to be a destination. You want to find us. You want a product. You come find us. And Eric, that's a pretty big decision as well that you guys decided to start off with a retail shop, right? A lot of people would, you know, develop their their denim and then just try to try to find distribution outlets. But you decided to actually create a shop in New York City, which you know, even back then, the meatpacking wasn't wasn't cheap. So. No, we, yeah, we were paying the first year, we were paying $11,000 a month in rent, and that was in 2003. I mean, it went and tripled that over my, over my time in the location, but yeah. So yeah, it was, it was a big decision, but we also turned the store into an iconic, literally an iconic store in, in, in the denim business and in the fashion business. You know, we yeah, used to- became a destination. We, yeah, we would literally have, you know, some mornings we would, we would, 
I would go to open up, we'd have a line of, of Japanese tourists looking for They just couldn't wait to get in. They just couldn't wait to get in. And we had guys that would come right from the airport. They would come right from like JFK with their bags right to Gene Shop. Before they went to the hotel, they were so excited to see it. So when you started, were you using primarily cone denim from um, White Oak or were you using Japanese denim? Was it a mix? What, what, where were you at? 100% Kaihara. Everything in the store. Kaihara, yeah. Black, white, garment dye, shirting weight. Everything in my store was Kaihara. Because you already had that relationship with them from uh, when you're at Gap. Yeah. Well, what happened was, yes, um, I went to Cone because I, I was I wanted to use Cone, so I wanted to be American. And Cone would not, at the time, do custom salvage for me. And to, at the time, oh. custom salvage was incredibly important to me. I wanted to have our orange and white branding. You know, I didn't want I didn't want to just put another salvage product out. I wanted the our salvage that we owned for branding purposes. And and Cone didn't want to do it um, because our volumes were too small. We're startup, so I needed you know. What did I need? I needed you know, 2,000 yards of fabric, and I'm like, we're not doing 2,000 yards custom, even though I had a tremendous relationship with them and I'd done, you know, ridiculous amounts of business with them through my through my past career, as have my partners, as the founders of, of the massive denim brand. But they didn't want it, and I had a great relationship with Kaihara. I shipped Kaihara, my, my salvage pattern I wanted, with my swatch collar, and, you know, literally, like literally without exaggerating, within 10 days, I rolled fabric in the office because, um, yeah, those guys are were the best and they understood what I wanted to do. And um, yeah, I used them exclusively. I got to use them exclusively for many, 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 many years until they ended up selling out all their volume to uh, to, to one of the big brands. Kind of hard to... And that, that Jean Shop orange is so iconic. You know, whenever I see that color orange, it's like immediately, oh, you know, Jean Shop. And so where did that orange come from? I, and I'm going to go out on a limb here. I know uh, on the flag in, in New York State, right, there is that orange just because it's background coming from, from Dutch descent. Is, is that it? Or am I totally off base with that? No. no All right. Well, I swung and I missed. <laughs> it would have made a great story, but no. You know, where it came from was, I, I got to tell you, I, I, no place special. It just came from a, from a thread collar one day, just looking at it next to a deep indigo. And that was it. I love your story. I love a great story from the play. <laughs> <laughs> use it, use it, use it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it worked. Very cool. I mean, the, the, you know, just in terms of branding, that orange color, iconic, and then also the pig uh, that was on the jeans. You know, the first time I saw it, I was like, what the, you know, that's, it's just so unexpected. But that's what, that's what sticks with you, you know, seeing the pig on that, um, on that patch. Yeah, and then we also um, were, we were the first brand to put the salvage on the fly piece. I don't know if you remember. Oh, okay, wow. To the fly. Yeah. That is saying overlock on it. Um, I was in a factory one day, and I'm, and we're cutting, and on the cutting floor was these little pieces. They're like seven inches long. And I'm like, this is crazy. That's this is the best part. That. Why are we throwing all this out? And I, I'll never forget, because I started making my first jean at a, at a factory called Memento. And I'm, I'm in there, and I'm like, hey, I'm like, where can I fit this? And I put it on the fly and then I handed it to the factory owner. I said, will you make a bunch of jeans with this on the fly? We ended up trademarking. So wow. Jean Shop owns a trademark putting salvage on the fly. That's just crazy. I'm just sitting here with my mouth wide open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so kind of take us through the evolution of Jean's job. When you started, um, how many fits did you have? Were you, were you just doing uh, denim? Were you just doing jeans? Did you have shirting? How did how did the business start and how did it grow? So an interesting fact about Jean's shop that not many people remember, when we started, we, we only had women's jeans, raw. Because we, wow. we, we hadn't perfected our men's jean yet and we were ready to open up the store. And we said, we're not holding up the opening of the store for the men's fit, let's just open the women's. And we did, it was, you know, good. To be, you know, good or bad, I don't know, that's what we decided to do. So we opened with women's. <laughs> Raw women's 100% cotton jeans. 100% cotton, wow. 
Yeah. That is niche. It was like four months later that we got, that we ended up bringing in men's. Um, men's, we started with, women's, we started with two fits. Men's, we started with two fits. Which I'm yeah. still a firm believer. I think you only need three fits for a brand. I don't think you need any more than that. Well, I think what, you had the, the Mick, the Bowie, and the Jim, is it? Yeah, that, at the end we did, yeah. Yeah, and we had yeah. the Rocker. The Rocker, was our, the Rocker was our best fit throughout the whole history of the company by far. We sold, that was our, you know, majority of our sales. But yeah, so we started out just doing Indigo. Then we got into a few, uh, very few washes. Most of the washes we were doing literally in the back of the store, by hand, rubbing on the table in the back. And then we would always bring in some really cool shirt weights. So we, you know, there was no real, there was no science between like, okay, now we're going to do another shirt at the beginning. You know, later on as, as things grew and, you know, we started doing wholesale, we needed to do more planning. But at the beginning, we would find a great fabric, like, okay, let's make it in a bunch of shirts. And we did. And we had an unbelievably, I'm sure you guys, you know, agree, we had an unbelievably loyal following. It was like mind-boggling how many, you know, the people that we were following the brand and the loyalty that they had. I used to go to Japan because we had a, a quite a significant business in Japan for years. And I would go to Japan to do a trunk show or something, and there would be 150 people to see us in Japan. I was, I was like, I can't even believe it. But it was, it was a really cool brand. We never sold it out. We always did it right. You know, we never discounted. That was our thing. We just don't discount. Even the celebrities that used to come into the store that wanted the product, I wouldn't even discount to a celebrity. I'd say, you know, you want to buy it. You know, we don't give stuff away. We don't discount stuff. It's, you know, costs a lot to make it. Yep. And did you remain with those two partners throughout the entire course of the business? I did. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, they're great guys. Still, still dear friends of mine. Yeah. See, we went from Kayahara um, into Cohen. If we go back to that part of it, just simply because Kayahara wasn't available to me anymore because they, they sold 100% of their salvage business um, to Unigo. The Unigo had come out with that famous Unigo, I think it was like a $68 gene or something like that. So right. really my, my, my lead times for fabric went from basically six weeks to you know, like eight months. So I really couldn't work like that anymore. So I went to, I went back to Cohen and I said, guys, now we do our custom salvage. And they're like, yeah, definitely. Obviously our numbers went up and you know, we needed, we, you know, we used a lot more denim. Yeah, we used Cone, I used Cone for years. From Moido. And at that point, were you doing wholesale as well? Yeah. Yeah, we do wholesale to a lot of bunch, you know, a lot of boutiques. Um, tried the big boxes for a while, you know, the Nordstrom's and Blooming Mills. It just wasn't really for us. So most of what we did was, was smaller boutiques, you know, throughout the world. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you can just talk about that a little bit, you know, for, for other entrepreneurs who are building denim, denim brands and whatnot. So when you started, you had your own shop. You could obviously do direct sales. This is before online sales was, was even really meaningful. But then the natural progression is, right, start doing the wholesale, uh, look for the big box stores, but then also find the boutiques. So what was like when, when you started selling and saying, hey, you know what, I need a larger platform here for distribution. Like, how did that develop over time? And looking back, any advice that you would kind of give to people uh, following a similar path? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a really good question. You know, it's, it's a tough business working with the big box guys. Um, it's, just a, it's, just a, it's just a formula. And even now you can see with, with, with COVID, I think, is a tipping point for a lot of these stores. And, and I think the majority of them will never come back. And if they do come back, they're sure not going to be the same as they've ever been, um, without a doubt. It's, it's a tough way to do business because um, their business model is all about chargebacks. And their business model is all about markdowns. And unless you're willing to 
accept chargebacks and markdowns from some of these big guys. It just it's it just physically can't work. Yeah, just define define that for some people who don't know what that that term is. Chargeback. Yeah, so chargeback would be if the chargeback would be I make I make jeans for store XYZ. XYZ has a has a has a book for shipping that could be twenty five you know hundred pages with all different stipulations in there. So I I I, I ship. And I use the wrong size boxes of them. And my box doesn't reach, isn't up to their standards that their distribution center needs. They hit me back with a truck. I get billed for it. I get billed, you know, whatever it could be, $100 a box, you know, because my box right. wasn't size. You don't do paperwork right. The right, the right tag isn't on their, isn't on the gene when they unpack it. Charge back. And then discounts. If the product doesn't sell at a certain margin, meaning if you guarantee them whatever margin you work out, and, and they tell you, okay, well, we have to put, we have to put it on sale early because it wasn't moving. We're going to charge back now. For, that, for a margin guarantee. Right. So it's really a, a delicate calculation, right? Because your volume is going to increase, but then on the other side, there's going to be those potential chargeback. Uh, your margin is going to decrease, and you could even lose money uh, depending on what they what they bring back to you. You definitely lose money. You could you could ship your product and, and, and not get paid and end up paying us. It's not a sustainable business right now, and from for many different reasons. Also, I believe that. Most stores, majority of the stores, they don't, they don't really, they're never going to know your brand like you do. And they're never going to care about your brand like you do, like a small boutique does. And if you have a specialty yeah. denim brand, it's different. It's not a product that's going to necessarily sell itself because a lot of it's about story. It's not just like putting a cool graphic t-shirt on a shelf where somebody's going to walk over and say, wow, look at this thing's great. Look how soft it is. I want this. The average gene that's from a really cool brand that, that, that a guy like, like you guys are building in, in, you know, in your office and sewing and having a real you know, passion around it, it sits in a store. Nobody understands it. They just don't get it. And the salespeople turn yeah. over all the time. So if you, even if you go in and do product knowledge seminars or you gift jeans, so you're like, okay, I'll give you a pair of jeans. I want you to wear them on the floor. You know, what I saw so many times in the big boxes, the people just change. The help, you know, evaporates after, after six weeks, somebody else comes in. So, so now you're going back retraining and regifting. And it's, it was a really difficult way to build a brand, you know, going to the big boxes. Yeah. I had, I had great success with some smaller boutiques where I made a lot of really good friends throughout the country and they would, they would buy jeans on a regular basis. And that's, that's, that's the way to build, to build brand. But right now it's all about the internet. It's all about direct consumer. I mean, really, that's what the, that's the business right now is direct to consumer. Over time, were you able to make that transition where you're selling more online, or did you kind of have that customer base who wasn't familiar with that and it was a more difficult transition to make? No, we had both, for sure. We had plenty of guys that, that, that loved our online, loved our website. We got a lot of action on the website. You know, just that selling a gene on a website is not so easy at the beginning. You know, now, now people are used to it. You know, but six, eight years ago, to buy a raw gene that they're not that's unsure of the fit, and to buy it, you know, to buy it online, there were a lot of challenges at the beginning. You know, now I think average consumers used to it because you can take you send it back, but you also know what size you are. And then the other thing was we did we did a lot of vanity sizing, which most denim brands do. So right. you know, so so thirty six really measures a thirty eight, let's say. But now you have your consumer that you know is used to buying a thirty six that might not always measure thirty eight. Not every brand vanity size the same way. And then you get more returns. You know what I mean? Because then yeah. they fit exactly like you thought they would. And then they send it back to you. And then losing a lot of money because your inventory's out in the field. But at the same time, you also have a lot of returns and you're paying for postage. So Yeah, yeah. It's a delicate business model, you know, diving into the, the denim game. Uh, it's a challenge. Actually, which kind of brings me to, to something else, right? Just seeing you build that business, it reminds me of How to Make It in America, which you were a big part of, which was an HBO series back in, what, 2011, 2012, yeah. ran for two seasons. I have to, let me let me confess right up front. So uh, as you know, I make custom jeans in Brooklyn. So whenever I have the conversation with somebody about what I'm doing, they're always like, oh, have you seen How to Make It in America? And I've been told about this show 20 times, and I've seen a little bit of 
of it on, on YouTube, but I've never, I've never had, I don't know, I've, I've never been able to sit down and find it on HBO or Netflix, wherever it is. Because for me, it's like I want to write my own story. I want to write my own ending. But um, anyway, that's just my disclaimer as to why I haven't seen it yet. But um, well, I want to hear about your experience with it because you, you were in it as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was a writer and an actor. Yeah, which is actually wow. a funny story because you know it, it was they, these guys. The guys called it the East Coast Entourage. So it was the same. It was the same directors, producers as Entourage. Right. He came into the store one day, and Rob Weiss, Mark Wahlberg, right? He was. Yeah. Um, they were all involved with it. They came in the store one day and they were screwing around in the store and I was in there and it was like five guys were being real goofy and doing, we always had tequila on, on, in the store. We had tequila bar in the store. So they're starting to do tequila shots and, and I'm like, okay, what, what's like, okay, so one of the guys went and tried on jeans. So the other guys would go into the fitting room, take his personal jeans and throw them in the street in front of the store. So I'm like, who are you guys? What are you guys doing? There's something going on here. They were all just goofing on each other and having a lot of fun and they were middle-aged guys. They weren't, you know, they weren't high school. So, so then the one guy says to me, he goes, we're here to talk to you, actually. And I'm like, talk to me? How do you even know who I am? And they're like, you're Eric, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm Eric. And they, so it turned into, you know, a whole thing. Well, we're thinking about writing series about this. We wanted, you know, we're thinking about doing it about, you know, part of it about the denim business. And that led to countless meetings and phone calls and, and passing scripts around because they wanted really, they wanted it to feel real and true. They didn't want it to be made up. They wanted it to really be as authentic as possible. So my scene, I played myself. I played the owner of Gene Shop, which I had to audition for, believe it or not. Literally, I had to go up to <laughs> audition to be myself. Uh, but yeah, so it was, a bunch, it was a bunch of guys that were hustlers that moved over from, uh, two guys that moved over from LA, and they wanted to make some money because they wanted to party and do drugs and hang out and drink all night and, and hit the scene. But they didn't know how they were going to make money. So they were, they were into fashion. They came into the store one day, like, which happened all the time at the beginning of the shop. People would come in all the time and, and fake like, you know, they were just curious. And they'd be like, oh, so where do you get your fabric from? And I'm like, we don't give out our sources. Like, where do you make your jeans? We're like, we don't give out our factory name. Which would happen literally at the beginning when we started. I mean, at least three or four times a month. People would ask. They, they would always come in, dig around for any, anything that we would give. What mill we used, you know, what fabric style was, what, you know, anything. They would, they would, always, they would always hammer my salespeople to, okay, could you tell us, could you get this information for me? So that's really what turned into How to Make in America. Wow. These guys came in and they found out they wanted to know the factory. So they asked me. So I sent them to a factory. I made up an address in Brooklyn, and it ended up being a meatpacking plant. But these guys went there to talk to the factory owner, and that's one of the scenes <laughs> where they opened up the door. Got more pigry. So how was it, you know, running Gene Shop and actually having that business? And at the same time, you're a writer and actor on that show. Those must have been some very busy, uh, busy months. Yeah, it was, was exciting times for sure. It was great for the business too because it gave the business tremendous runs. Right. The um, they filmed in the store. They filmed two different scenes in the store. Wow. And how, how do you rate yourself as an actor? <laughs> uh, let's not go there. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think and, any there. nominations? Any nominations? You planning to move to LA? Not, not in this lifetime. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> so just before we, we wrap up with uh, with Gene Shop, so now that you're you're out of it, um, can you share like were you producing here in the U.S.? Did you decide to pro produce abroad? How how did you work the the production aspect of that? No, we were we were we were we did a short collection in Asia to try to do for for more mass market in some stretch products and um and a different price yeah. point, but for you know ninety percent of the brand was made in the United States, California. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was manufactured in L.A. Factories no longer around. We manufactured in LA. 
Um, you know, as I said, it was all kind of hard fabric or cone. Yeah. Actually, this is a question I'm, I'm dying to ask you. Why is the L.A. manufacturing scene for denim so much more robust than New York City? I mean, you know, New York obviously has the garment district, but just in terms of where people are producing, almost nothing is being made in New York City or Brooklyn. Everything is happening out in Los Angeles. And, you know, honestly, generally it's cheaper, less expensive as well. Labor. That's that simple. That's simple. They have the they have the sewing machine operators there. They have labor there, which New York does not have. Yeah. They have big factories and they also have laundries, which are not you can't you know, laundries are massive investments. You know, it's a it's a we're opening a laundry right now in Fidelia. It's a, it's it's a two million dollar investment to just open a laundry. Yeah. You really you're not gonna find a laundry in New York because you know, it's a two million dollar investment in equipment. Now you now you you know you're gonna pay New York real estate prices to put up a laundry? It's not gonna happen. So in yeah. LA Obviously, a lot, a lot cheaper and a lot more manageable to do everything there. Although everything's moving yeah. out of LA rapidly. LA is, you know, majority of the denim's gone from there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the, the labor costs are, are rising everywhere in New York. Um, now the minimum wage is $15. In LA and California, it's going to be that if it's not that already. Yep. Um, so I don't know, you know, and I'm all for paying people a fair wage and, and even a good wage. But then, you know, the, the opposite side of that is how do you keep certain jobs in this area if they're not being subsidized or supported by the government? So definitely some big challenges just for the denim industry in the United States as a whole. Yeah. And, but but the, other, the other part of it is the sustainability and environment aspects as well. That's why a lot of women are moving out of L.A. because the water is not as available as it was. Water is very, utilities are very expensive in L.A. And you're, yeah. you know, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough business to run in, in Los Angeles, the denim business right now for, for all the reasons yeah. that we just said. If I could just ahead, jump, jump in, it, it just seems very bleak in terms of the formula for the big box stores to manufacturing in the U.S. And then just with the current climate, it just seems. Oh, I, I think the opposite. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. I think there is a tremendous opportunity right now in our business. And I preach that all day long. And, and that's, you know, like what we're doing at the value right now is it's unbelievable. It's an incredible opportunity to bring business back. Yeah. Because so big boxes, that's what that is. That, this is a tipping point. And, and you know, it, it, whether it happened, you know, if it didn't happen now because of COVID, it was going to happen in the future anyway, because that business model is just changing. Yeah. But, but I'm personally very enthusiastic about going, moving forward with the debt of business in the United States. You know, yeah. and... I mean, that could bring us into, our, into, into the conversation where I am now with Fidelia. We're, we're doing yeah. something. Go on, I'm sorry. Just, just, before we dive in, just before we dive into that, Eric, so just to wrap up Gene Shop, at what point, I mean, this must have been a very difficult decision for you, right? That's for every entrepreneur, that's your baby when you start a company and, and build it from the ground up. At what point did you kind of look around, look at the landscape and decide, you know what, we think it's, it's time to move on from this and, and close it down. So Gene Shop, what closed in, was it 2018, the end of 2018, 2019? Close the year. 2019. Yeah. It's a really good question. And it was honestly, it was really simple. Um, rent. We just, you, you, you can't possibly pay rent. You know, I had an 800 square foot store. My, my, my rent, my rent utilities and staff were an 800 square foot store. It cost me almost $40,000 a month. I'm just being transparent. Ooh. Oh yeah. I mean, in that neighborhood wow. on, on Crosby street and you see the, yeah. the surrounding retail luxury retail around you. No yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that is the the premier destination for a retail store, basically in the United States, right? You're in Soho, in New York City, Manhattan. Um, that's where people want to be. But boy, forty thousand dollars a month—that is, that's a lot of overhead right there. And it was just really stressful. It turned into not being fun anymore. Honestly. It was so much fun yeah. back in the day, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, ten. You know, when business was 
humming and the customers were great and everybody was really passionate about it. it was, the consumer wasn't really walking around the streets looking for denim. Rents were through the roof. The dollar was really strong. So tourism, you know, was, was down. But there, were, there were just a lot of reasons and it just didn't, just didn't make sense anymore. And there was a tremendous amount of competition. So, so, so think about this. When I started, when I started Gene Shop in 2003, we were a really cool specialty brand in a market that was kind of tight. Okay. In 2018, every brand had a gene. Every brand. Saturday, so it was next door to me, had their, had their own gene. The barber shop uh, sold clothing. Every, every, uh, the, 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 that European tailor moved a couple of doors away from me. He had his own denim collection. You know, Bloomingdale's had it. Everybody sold jeans all of a sudden. It, it turned into such a popular product over those years that there's just, there, there was, there's just not enough volume for anybody to make a real living at it. It just wasn't there. It was like, I always say the pizza pie didn't get any bigger, but and every good brand used to have a slice, but now there's crumbs left for everybody because there's so many brands. Right. Yeah. I, and you know, I'm just thinking about the raw denim business. And I know that you diversified into different washes, but you know, when you think about the number of raw denim brands back in 2003, what it's, you know, a handful, you know, Avisu and Big John and just a few others. Um, but n- now at this point, right, there's, we're kind of a dime a dozen. There's just a ton of different options to choose from. That's my point. And listen, some of them, some of them I have a lot of respect for that are really good. And some of them I don't just mail it in. Have no idea. And it really put a hurt on the business. It made yeah. it, it made it not fun. So yeah. Uniqlo, Uniqlo's back door was basically right across the street from my front door in Frost because they were on Broadway. So they're, they're back, you know, so, so Uniqlo sold, you know, H&M, all these guys had, had, had salvaged jeans for like under a hundred bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Once fast fashion starts moving into your market, then you know that you've reached a certain saturation point and um, yeah, it's difficult to compete with, you know, $50 salvage denim. So, so, but making that call, you know, sitting down with your partners and being like, Hey guys, you know, this is the time that's still a difficult decision. Did you already have kind of was, was Vidalia coming online already when you made that decision or was that a totally independent decision? Never heard about that. No, that point. It was completely after I left, we closed Gene Shop in May. I never met Dan from Vidalia until August. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, let me, um, let me just say as a person who has their own denim brand, I have a lot of respect for you that you did it. You did it for so many years and it was so successful. So hats off to you. That's, that's a great run. So appreciate it. Honestly, it means a lot coming from you guys.